Hello Internet, my name is Jonathan Cook. And I'm Matt Noble. And this week on Screen Verdict, we're going to be reviewing the film The Master. Say it again. 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 The Master! Are you lying? No. You blinked, I think we should maybe start again. (laughs) (laughs) And this week on Screen Verdict, we're going to be reviewing the film The Master. Yeah, that sounds better. (laughs) (laughs) Surprisingly, a film not about me... <laughs> I have a master's in creative writing. Oh, do you? Apparently, that not only doesn't get you a job, but also doesn't get a film made about you because it's not about me. The master is, in fact, a film about, I suppose, life after World War Two for someone. Yeah, someone that was in the uh, the navy. The character of Freddie Quill, played by Joaquin Phoenix. Hmm. And I guess that was pretty stressful because he comes back to America, and it's I guess it's about him adjusting back into the normal world. Yeah, and it looks like at the first he might be going okay. He's got a good job taking photos of people in the mall. Um, sort of you get to meet people. He gets to sleep with a girl selling meat coats at the thing, <laughs> gets a girlfriend. That's sort of nice. Things seem to be going okay, but one day he just loses it and, like, tackles a guy pretty much. He's trying <laughs> to take a photo of. So clearly he hasn't adjusted that well. No, it seemed not. And he's drinking a lot as well. Oh, yes. Bit of a boozer. Mm. And drunkenly, one night, he stumbles onto a boat. Yes. Boat that's leaving. Seems to be having a bit of a party going on. Party boat. A cool crew of people uh, perhaps escaping the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> It'd be the place to be if yeah. you were. <laughs> I thought this could be fun when he got on the, the boat. I thought, oh, he's had a bit too much to drink. He's a bit down his luck, but this was like a fun place to be, a party boat, help him forget his troubles. I don't know. I was expecting the movie to get a bit more exciting at this point. He's on a party boat. <laughs> party time. It seemed to be fun for the Lonely Island. Yeah. I uh, expected yes. it to be fun for Joaquin Phoenix as well. Yeah. And on the boat is the character of Lancaster Dot, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yes. Now, he seems to be sort of the leader or the master, I guess. Yeah on the boat, leading a group of people in, is it fair to say a cult? I think people have called it a cult. People have drawn parallels to Scientology. I don't think it's supposed to directly be about L. Ron Hubbard, but it's a similar sort of timeline, a a group uh, of people that believe in the lessons given out by this man who claims to know, I guess, truths of human history and the human spirit. Yes, and like even like not just from like when he was born, but like from like millions of years ago too. Yeah, he's able to contact himself's previous spirits mm. back through uh, many many lifetimes ago, mm. and so he becomes intrigued by uh, Joaquin Phoenix, and Joaquin Phoenix sort of takes him on in this kind of uh, father figure role, kind of a mm. leader, a master, becomes his protege in a way. Yeah. Do you have a sense of why Lancaster Dodd took so much to this guy? Yeah, that's a good question. Normally in these films where someone takes on a protege, it's because they see something in them. They Like, you resemble me, or you have this hidden talent, or mm. you have this un- unique way of looking at things, where Joaquin Phoenix is just a bit of a mess, really. He's a bit of a scoundrel, basically, and... Most people think he's trouble. Mm. 
I guess something that he that he offered Philip Seymour Hoffman at the start was that drink. Yes. It seemed like at the beginning, Philip Seymour Hoffman was more interested in getting the drink. He was like, that's great stuff. You can stay with me as long as you can keep making this great alcohol drink. <laughs> and it was an interesting drink as well. Yes. Joaquin Phoenix seems to have a knack for creating these concoctions, these elixirs. Yeah. Mixed with various liquors, but also medicines and paint strippers and just generally a list of things I don't think you should be drinking. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if there's an art to that. There's a certain things you could mix with paint thinner to make it okay or whether these people were just getting high on destroying their own brain cells. I'm not really sure. It's pretty potent stuff. Like, that's pretty... It strips paint. It strips paint. <laughs> like, I'm not sure if that would do well on your tongue. Like... Yeah. Oh. Are you a good mixer of drinks, Matt? Do you have a, a cocktail that's your specialty? When I was in LA, someone taught me how to make a, make a chocolate cake shot. Oh, that sounds good. What's in, what's in a chocolate cake shot? You can't, a chocolate cake shot, you, you have the shot. It, you... You just, you just have a shot of liquor and then take a bite of chocolate cake. <laughs> That's the move. That's a no, no, no. <laughs> well, you put like hazelnut liqueur and a couple of things in there. And then um, what you do, I think you put uh, some lemon in sugar and you suck on that. And then you take the shot and then you breathe out and it feels like you've just had a slice of chocolate cake. There you go. Did you just make all that up? No! You just started smiling at me, just like, idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Google it. I don't have a drink specialty. In fact, I'm a bit wary of sort of mixed drinks. I had a friend make for me. Well, I can't remember the name. They told me it'd be delicious. It was a mix of Tabasco and tequila. And that dropped me. That, That put me out for the night pretty instantly. I felt very ill, very hot in the face, and, uh would be equally wary of whacking Phoenix's uh, paint thinner drinks. Yes. <laughs> it's always a worry when, uh, didn't Phil Seymour Hoffman at one point go to him, hey, do you need me to get the stuff for you? And he's like, no, 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 I'm right. He's like, I'll just find things yeah, around, I'll like the, things. the boat engines. Yeah. Like. <laughs> so I guess they form this alcohol-based friendship. Yeah. And I suppose the story is his introduction to this new way of life and Philip Seymour Hoffman's community and friends and Mm. him undergoing sort of, I guess, analysis by him. Yes. There's a lot of sort of interviews and processing, I think is the term they give it. Yes, they process people and Philip Seymour Hoffman asks some quite intimate questions and things and uh, like we did at the beginning of this podcast, a lot of asking to repeat the answers and say it again, say it again, say it again, say it again. Till the person loses it. <laughs> so I guess that's the premise of the film, the mm-hmm. story that the, the master tells. Yeah. Now, this film is written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. He's a big guy. Like, people talk about him. Like, he's a pretty respected director. Yeah, he has a neck beard. Mm-hmm. So you can tell that he's a alternative film director mm-hmm. that all the hipster kids like. And he's one of those guys who only does a film every, like, Three or four years sort of thing. Mm. So you've got to wait for his film to come out. Now, he's directed a few films you might have heard of. Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love, and before this he did There Will Be Blood. Mm. Have you seen any of these, Matt? Are you a oh, fan? I have only seen There Will Be Blood. 
And did you enjoy it? I loved There Will Be Blood. You loved I it? I thought it was great. It was an amazing film. Great character studies. Great story. Brilliant crescendo at the end. It all built up brilliantly. It got in your head. Really good film. He should have won the Oscar for Best Director. Well, he should have won Best Director at the Oscars that year. And that was his last one, so you probably had reasonable hopes for The Master. Yeah, I, I, I did. Yeah. Well, I've seen Boogie Nights, mm-hmm. which I really didn't enjoy. A lot of people like that film, but I thought it was all over the place, and I found it quite frustrating. Mm-hmm. And I've also seen Magnolia, mm-hmm. which I actually really enjoyed. It was quite hard to get your head around. It was a bit... It was something different, but I think you were able to connect to it and it had all these sort of different stories that didn't all come together neatly in the end, say like a, a love actually type movie, but there was kind of thematically linked and I think it, it I think it worked really well. So mm. I liked Magnolia and The Master is, is the next film that I've seen of his. Mm. So I really wasn't sure what to expect because I had such differing opinions on the, the two films of his I'd seen so far. And the most recent one, Magnolia, was done over 10 years ago, mm. so a big gap. He's grown his neck beard a lot in that time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there you go. He also, interestingly, did this film in 70mm film, which uh, we had the privilege <laughs> of getting to... We watched this film last night, and uh, we went to a cinema in Sydney that actually had the 70mm screening, uh, which meant we had to pay about, like, six extra dollars to watch the movie. <laughs> Um, now, what in the hell is 70mm film? <laughs> Why should I care about that? Why should I have had to pay more for that? Well, I have read the extensive Wikipedia page on 70mm film, and I'm still not really sure what it means. It, well, there's quite a lot of technical specification type talk going on, but 70mm is a different kind of film that the movie is shot on, the standard is 35mm, and I think this is means that there's the... That's like double the millimetres. Yeah. Apparently this means there's a potential for higher resolution. I don't know if it's double the resolution, but I think it's better. Okay. So uh, what we saw last night was better than most movies we see in terms of resolution. Yes. Whoa. Were you able to tell the difference? No. I didn't really notice anything special about it. Yeah. So something perhaps more interesting than the technical aspect that we weren't able to notice yeah. is the fact that this is actually quite rare. Oh. Not many cinemas are even able to play 70mm films. Uh, apparently these days it's, it's sort of out of favour. Uh, not many films use 70mm. In fact, in the last 20 years, only four films have been shot entirely on 70mm film. So most directors have realised that people can't really tell the difference between 70 and 35mm. <laughs> So they're not wasting the extra millimetres. <laughs> but who, what, so what are these four films? Let's see if there's a link here. Perhaps these, we can compare the master compare. to these. Yes. The best 70 millimetre film yeah. we could <laughs> declare it to be in our yeah, I hope I've seen the other three. Um, good luck. <laughs> they are Ron Frick's Baraka and its sequel Samsara and Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. And the fourth is The Master. Oh, The Master's one of the four. I think I've heard of Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. <laughs> uh, I've definitely heard of Hamlet. 
And I've definitely heard of Kenneth Branagh. Yeah. So I could believe that yeah. Kenneth Branagh did a version of he Hamlet. He seems like the kind of guy that would have done a Hamlet too, doesn't he? <laughs> he seems the type. He so would have shot it in 70 mil. Oh, that's yeah. classic Branagh right there. <laughs> yes. There you go. <laughs> Good job, Paul. Bit of film history for you there. Yeah. Now, this is quite a character-heavy film. It is very character-heavy. <laughs> so let's talk a bit about them. We have... I guess the, the main character is Joaquin Phoenix. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess. How do you say it's like... But everyone says it differently, like, Joaquin, Phoenix. Like, yeah. Joaquin Phoenix is how I say it. Yeah, let's, let's, let's go with that. I think don't pronounce as many letters as you can get away with in the Yakun. Yeah. I, I was considering saying, let's just initial him to make it easier. Let's just call him JP. But then people will be like, oh, you don't pronounce the J, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's P. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he <laughs> he hasn't done a whole lot of acting the past couple of years, has he? Well, one could argue he's been doing nothing, nothing but, but acting for the past few years. But in terms of uh, IMDb credited roles... Yeah, he has not done much because I saw him on Letterman a couple of years ago said he was quitting acting. To do the hip-hop. Yeah. Was that all a ruse, Matt? Okay, now this is what happened, wasn't it? He came out and said, ah, jokes on everyone, jokes on Letterman, who I acted like I did a meltdown in front of on the live TV and everyone thought it was crazy. Jokes on Letterman, jokes on everyone. It was all an act. We were doing a mockumentary on me pretending to be a hip-hop star. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I'm actually a serious actor. I'm going to get back into acting now. Now, I saw this documentary, mockumentary, whatever it's called. I'm still here. I think if you're doing a hoax, there's usually the scene or the the clip of, okay, guys, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> I'm just about to go on Letterman and have a meltdown. Everyone's going to go ballistic. And then he, like, goes and does it. And then, like, he comes back with his mates and goes, ah, we got him. <laughs> you're going to talk about this the next day in entertainment tonight. But you don't get any of that. So was all this shot after... That meltdown? I think some of the shot before. I think it's a... He wanted to get into hip-hop, and they were filming him getting into the hip-hop scene, <laughs> and I think it hit the fan, and this was a a Hail Mary pass to get out of the controversy and the meltdown stuff to say, ah, it was a joke. <laughs> it was a joke. We were filming it. Yeah. Here's the thing about pranks. If I were to do a prank where... I trick everyone into thinking I'm mental. I don't think I'd want that to go on for maybe more than a month. Yeah. He didn't get any proper film roles for over four years. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's either serious dedication to the prank. Yeah. Or this is just a desperate attempt to pass off going crazy. Yeah. It just does not ring to me as a prank. Watching the film, it did not ring to me as a prank. It seemed to me like someone had gone crazy. Well, maybe he was the right person to play this character of Freddie Quill, because yes. he's not quite all there. Mm. Yes, he's not. Do, do you like Yakun Phoenix as an actor? I think I've only seen a few of his performances. I saw... I liked him in Gladiator, mm -hmm. and I think he was really good in Walk the Line as well. So, I guess not seen enough him to be one of my favourites, but... Yeah, I think uh, he's been pretty good. Again, that was many years ago. Could yeah. have had a meltdown in the meantime. <laughs> I, I think um, 
I think he's a good actor, but he's never been one of my favourites. I've never been drawn to one of his performances, perhaps. But, yeah, no, he's a good actor. We could hope that you're drawn into this character because he's on screen for probably over two hours. Mm. I guess this character, Freddy, has an interesting sort of background, some bad family history. He went off to war. Now he's always drinking these weird drinks all the time. Yeah. I think perhaps he's he's taken the cue from uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. in Tropic Thunder. He's not gone full retard. No. He's not playing a mentally disabled person. He's not a complete wacko. He's just a bit... There's something just a bit off about him. He's a little strange. Mm. And a lot of the scenes he shares with Philip Seymour Hoffman, mm. character of Lancaster Dodd. Philip Seymour Hoffman, in our last podcast, you declared him to be one of the greatest living actors. Matt, what do you like about Philip Seymour Hoffman? I think Philip Seymour Hoffman is always great. One of the five greatest working film actors um, of today. I just think... He's constantly turning in great performances and varied performances. He was in Capote. He was in Charlie Wilson's War. He was in Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. He's in Doubt. He's in The Ides of March. Uh, in the, and all those performances have been in about the past six, seven years. And I have different opinions on all of those films. There is one opinion I have that is true to all of those films. <laughs> great performance by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, I think I have a similar opinion to you on Philip Seymour Hoffman. Even films that I thought were pretty terrible, like The Boat That Rocked, the one thing that didn't suck was Philip Seymour Hoffman. Mm-hmm. And then he's also in great films like one of my favourites, Synecdoche, New York. Mm. So I haven't seen those two, that's why I didn't mention them. But <laughs> uh, he looks great in those. So I too was expecting a, a good performance from, from him. Now, in the film, we have a lot of scenes with just these two. Mm. They'll be in a room talking or across a table. Uh, A lot of Philip Seymour Hoffman analysing him. Mm. I guess this is what would make or break the film, I Mm. think, in a way. Whether we were interested in these two characters, whether the chemistry between the two of them worked, because it's a Mm. story about his master and his protege, and these Mm. are the two playing those characters. So what did you think of the dynamic between these two? I thought it was quite interesting. Um, It definitely had me drawn in a little bit to see how they were relating. I think there's a scene where they're both uh, in a prison. I won't give the context to that, but uh, that scene was great. And and you saw this real interesting dynamics between both of them. That being said, I feel like it was a a little bit like they didn't give us enough. Like we never saw the scene where they first met so we didn't see the beginning of their relationship. I found it hard to get really inside both of these people's heads. I think the relationship between them isn't particularly directly explored. We sort of experience it through certain vignettes, kind of Mm. snippets of different situations, and we kind of piece those pieces together ourselves. Yeah. I think for the most part, though, it it worked really well, especially when it was just those two. And my favourite was the processing scene. Yes, that was very good. With Philip Seymour Hoffman asking him these questions. And as it went on, it became just more and more tense. And there was almost like this electricity in the air. And it built and built and built and built. And then it climaxed. And there was just this moment of silence. And just everyone in the cinema just went, stop. And there was this kind of just this buzz in the air. It was one of those great 
scenes and great cinema experience. Something I don't think you could experience just by downloading it and watching it on your computer. Mm. Like, I think you could enjoy the scene, but just the feeling in the in the cinema, the climax of that scene, I think was something, something really special. Mm. And something interesting about those scenes... I guess in a way they're a bit like therapy sessions with yeah. the question recalling memories. Hmm. In a way I felt like it could relate to the audience. Like I, I found that scene sort of therapeutic and cathartic for myself in a way. Oh. Which is something I think is quite hard to achieve and something I was really impressed by. It meant that I was connecting with the film because of. Do you reckon Bella Seymour Hoffman would be a good like TV interviewer? Like he's sort of like... So able to get under the person's skin, and he asks very direct questions to get to the real heart of the issue, like and some controversial ones too, like you know, have you ever killed anyone? <laughs> have you ever had sex with someone in your family? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, Andrew Denton isn't asking those. No, those Parkinson, what are you doing? Step up your game. Yeah, Philip Seymour Hoffman's coming for your job. Yeah. <laughs> yes. There's also a bit of a third wheel to this film <laughs> in the form of Amy Adams. Yeah, it took me a while to work out who she was in the film because... She was the guy's wife. Yeah, but he has a daughter that's like the same age. Yeah, that's a good point. But yes, uh, Amy Adams is Philip Seymour Hoffman's wife. Mm. And uh, often in films where there's this charismatic character that's leading a group of people, it seems like the wife character often plays someone that's trying to keep them grounded or offers a different opinion for them to bounce off in order to manage what they're doing. But she was very much on board. She was all for the cause. She almost was pushing him further. Yeah, she was cause support driver number one. Yeah. I feel like even one of the nights she was, like, telling him what to type, like, for the book. Yeah, I, was, I, I thought it was an interesting scene because she was saying stuff and he was typing and I'm like, is he just trying to ignore her while trying to type or is she actually the one putting forth this message that's Def- being given in these books? Definitely in this that scene, I thought we were heading to a point in the film where it turned out she was had control over him and she was actually the using him to push her own, but they didn't really pursue that at all later. <laughs> like they, because then she goes and does some therapy with Yakin Phoenix, like straight after telling him what to write and think, oh, is she stepping a bit more into the forefront of this religion? But no. Were you hoping for that because you thought there'd be an interesting direction for the story to take or just because that meant more Amy Adams? Um, probably a bit of both, but like, I do think that would have been an interesting direction. Like um, if you see a bit of a power struggle. And sort of is things not being as it seemed, like everyone's following this guy, but it's really that girl that's calling the shots. So yeah, I, I look, Amy Adams, I think it's probably one of the five greatest working actors today. <laughs> <laughs> so it's good to see. I think I like some of her scenes, but I don't know if this is due to the performance or just the character, but none of them were really on the level of the main two for me. Uh, yeah, I think, like, she wasn't given the meat, I guess, that they were. She has the great scene where she's reading erotic literature, too. <laughs> they gave her some weird scenes, didn't yeah. they? It was like, her reading erotic li- literature to Jacqueline Phoenix. Then there's her giving Philip Seymour Hoffman the hand job while telling him... It's You're all- allowed to do whatever you want, as long as I don't find out about it. Yeah. 
and as long as no one else finds out about it. Yeah. That was sort of weird. Like, I don't know why she was saying that. Like, <laughs> yeah, there was just a few little weird scenes of her that I guess made her character interesting. Now, she talks a lot about sex, and there's a lot of nudity in this film. Mm. Unfortunately, Amy Adams doesn't get nude, I don't believe. Like you're seeing her from the side. Her legs are crossed, and her arms are folded over her breasts. Mm. So... I didn't mind that. Like, I don't think she had to get nude for this film <laughs> to be good. Like, <laughs> Well, Paul Thomas Anderson thought someone has to get nude yeah. for this film to be good because there's quite a few. In one scene, a whole room of people, and just a bit of a warning, in that scene, not everyone in the room is under the age of 50. <laughs> yes. So perhaps this film is aimed at a bit of an older demographic. <laughs> you had sort of the on-the-piano you had the older woman playing the piano next to the younger woman playing the piano, both of them nude. And I sort of thought the older woman was blocking the younger woman a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Who's done the blocking yeah. for this scene? Switch, yeah. switch those switch two. Those two. <laughs> yes. Switch those two around. Do you reckon the purpose of this scene, because it was fairly isolated and like not there wasn't really another scene like that in the movie, do you think that was just to like make it clear to the audience, this is a cult yeah, I think that's a pretty good distinction. Like, if you ever say you belong to a club or a social group or even a religion, and someone asks you, Has, have you ever just got naked? Has everyone in the room got naked and, and done a dance? Yeah. Yeah. Cult. That's, that's a cult. The more your religious meetings are mirroring college frat parties, <laughs> the closer you're getting to cults. Just drinking yeah. weird mixed drinks, getting naked, yeah, dancing. Yeah. Dancing, uh, having Philip Seymour Hoffman sing songs. like People getting handjobs in the yeah. bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so when you're mixing religion and college frat party... That's cult. <laughs> the, but what, because I, I think this is a film about a cult. What are the telltale signs of it being a cult? Obviously the nudity, the fact that they seem to always, like, they're all living together all the time mm. is probably also a bit of a cult sign. They travel en masse, this group of people. They're very shut off from the outside. Yeah. The word commune mm. is usually preceded by the word hippie. It's, yeah, uh, yeah. I think another telltale sign is whenever anyone questions Philip Seymour Hoffman about anything to do with the the faith or his teachings, he'll entertain them for maybe one question and <laughs> then just get really angry at them and just shout at them. Um, I know when, like at our church, if people have problems with what the ministers said or about they're confused about something in the Bible usually the minister will sit down and have a chat with them about that and talk through the issue um, and give their perspective and in a respectful sort of back and forth rather than just shout at them, shut up, I know what I'm talking about, you are just got to trust me. Sort of this asking for blind following is the sign of a cult. Have you ever yelled at anyone, if you know the answer, then why ask the question? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. These are probably the signs that you're in a cult. If if <laughs> it ticks all these boxes... Do we need, like, a screen verdict, like, cult helpline? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you are worried... Uh, well, I, th I think if you are worried that you are in a cult um, and you need some help from us, uh, screenverdict at gmail.com. 
and uh, or or on our Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash Screen Verdict Podcast. Okay, get on to us. We will help you through this free of charge. <laughs> so um, this film is about a guy post-war. He gets caught up in a bit of a cult. And I was pretty interested the whole film in how it was going to end. Were you pretty interested in that? Yeah, I guess if you're interested in any story, you've been (laughs) taken by the film, you want to know where it goes, how it ends. I was particularly interested in this. I thought they were setting the scene. I thought they were setting the table a lot of this film. I didn't feel like this film was going to be something with a big twist ending or it all came together as wrapped up in a neat little package. I felt like this was probably going to be relatively open-ended. It would just start at one point in the person's life and it's just going to end at another point in the person's life and you sort of gather what you will from what we saw in between. That was what I was getting the feeling of. Oh, I was expecting, like, there to be something interesting happen at the end. (laughs) I was expecting there to be a thing that it ends on. And I think maybe the reason is because of There Will Be Blood. What did you expect because of There Will Be Blood? Well, in There Will Be Blood, you have... The main guy, Daniel Plainview, who's the, who's the oil man <laughs> with his son, H.W. And in the town, there's a young religious zealot kid who's running the church. And those two sort of have an interesting relationship where they're pretty much at war with each other the whole film. But again, you've sort of got a, very, a film very focused on two individuals, quite a few one-on-one scenes, then playing off against each other quite a bit. But some time passes and you have the young kid come and visit Daniel Plainview in a really big house, in a really big room, where Daniel Plainview is sitting behind the desk. Very similar to a scene we have later on in this film, where after a bit of a break, Yaquin Phoenix comes to meet Philip Seymour Hoffman in a big house, and Philip Seymour Hoffman sitting behind a desk. Mm. And in that scene, in There Will Be Blood, it hits the fan. Like, it... (laughs) Or the scene and the scenes that follow... We have a really big, crazy scene. Very iconic scene in film. There are milkshakes drunk. <laughs> there are... There, they go temping bowling. All sorts of things happen in this final scene. It all comes to a head. And you get this, what I found, incredibly bizarre yet satisfying moment uh, between these two characters. And I guess I was expecting this to be a little bit more understated, but I was expecting, oh man, we're going to see something interesting happen here. Not much interesting happened. (laughs) (laughs) No, I haven't seen There Will Be Blood, so perhaps not as much happened as in that similar scene. But I think I liked this scene. There was an interesting story told. There was a song. I think you got sort of a progression or resolution in the relationship between the two characters. The whole film, Philip Seymour Hoffman's going to Yaquin Phoenix. I, I think I know you from somewhere. <laughs> I think uh, we've met before. Where have we met before? Is that your Philip Seymour Hoffman? It's my Dodd Lannister impression. Dodd Lannister. <laughs> Lancaster Dodd. Oh, that's my Lancaster Dodd impression. <laughs> <laughs> and at the final scene... Like, he calls Yaquin Phoenix up before the final scene goes, I remember, I remember where I, I remember where I remember you from. And I was going, oh, this is going to be good. I wasn't that impressed with where he remembered him from. I didn't think it was that interesting. (laughs) (laughs) 
I was quite, quite underwhelmed with the ending of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> it seems with people that claim to have past lives, everyone always has the most interesting background. Like they were an Egyptian king or a famous Viking warrior. Did you expect uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's past lives, or about his present life, to be more interesting? I guess. <laughs> who, who do you think you've been in a past life, Matt? I I don't believe in past lives. I'm not like <laughs> I don't prescribe to Lancaster Dodds. Yeah, I'm pretty sure if I had like a past life, I just would have been some like steel mill worker. Like I'm not going to claim. Yeah, in a past life, I was definitely like Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely what I'm going to be going telling people. <laughs> Man, I know this life, it's a bit mediocre, but man, back in the 40s, I was, I was killing it. You know who I was? I was Hitler. I was one of the most... Like primo Hitler as well. <laughs> Do you, people judge people for their past lives? Like, if you believe... I, I think not unless you're Hitler. I think, <laughs> I think that's one you're not going to get away with. Would they be upset if you were Hitler in your past life? Would they be blaming you today for what you like, or would they be like, "Well, well you're imagine, a different person now"? Imagine you go out on a date, and it's the first date. <laughs> is it getting to know you? Like, oh, what are some things about yourself? A bit of your your self history. You go, oh, I actually know who I was in a past life. I was Hitler. <laughs> date two. What do you reckon? Do you reckon, do you reckon they're getting a second date out of you? Well, it's stuff you don't share on a first date. <laughs> and being Hitler in a past life is one of them. I think. Well, I think. But I think here's the right reason she wouldn't give you a second date. Because most when most people talk about who they were in a past life, people think, "Well, I don't believe in that." Like you're mental, <laughs> um, and they usually went, "Oh, it's a bit of fun. This person's a bit quirky, or whatever." But like they're saying, "Why has this person decided they were Hitler?" <laughs> Like, I think that's more the issue as opposed to, oh, man, this was Hitler. This person is responsible for the murder of hundreds of thousands of people. I think they're more like, why does this person think they were Hitler? Like, what? (laughs) People think, oh, man, why isn't this guy in The Hague? They're really thinking, what's this guy's issue? Is it okay if they're apologetic? They're like, yeah, you should know in a past life I was Hitler. My bad. I feel really bad about it. I feel really sorry. We've all made mistakes. Maybe you forgot your mum's birthday one time, you didn't get her a card, I was Hitler. Like... Yeah, this isn't... Like, yeah, I don't know. I, <laughs> I think don't... I think in, on a first date, don't tell anyone you were anyone in a past life. Either you're someone not interesting, which is not interesting, you're someone <laughs> that people hate like Hitler, or you're someone people love, but people are like... Oh, that person's so full of themselves. <laughs> like, they're just trying to impress me by making something up about who they were. Like, oh, you you really like uh, Elvis Presley's music? Well, <laughs> funny story, I was Elvis Presley. <laughs> <laughs> and then Elvis just happens to walk through the best, just sneak out the back of the restaurant. He's not dead, man. I just saw him sneaking up in a six-foot sub. <laughs> <laughs> I do think with the past life stuff... In the fi- in one of those final scenes, Phil Seymour Hoffman does tell the person something that might happen in a future life. And I thought, boy, that sounds more interesting than this one. That sounds like a better movie than this life. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be watching the sequel to The Master. I think I will watch the sequel to The Master. <laughs>
Okay, one of our favourite segments now. What has the master taught us? Jonathan, what has the master taught you? Well, Matt, the master has taught me that no matter what role the actor Jesse Plemons gets, he doesn't have to change his haircut. Jesse Plemons, we've talked about on the podcast before, plays Todd oh! in the TV series Breaking Bad. Oh, Landry from Friday Night Lights. Landry, Landry. from Friday Night Lights. Yeah. I've seen him in Breaking Bad. I've seen him in The Master, which is set in the 50s. Yeah. I've seen him on the red carpet. Same hair. Yeah. Always the same haircut. Mm. Just short, tight, bit of a uh, bit of sort of maybe oil, bit of product, kind of uh, comb to one side, and, and he's good to go. So that's a versatile haircut you've you've stumbled upon there, Plemons. That, that can seemingly get you uh, plenty of film roles. Timeless. A timeless yeah. haircut. <laughs> so uh, here's maybe the tip for our listeners. You go to the hairdresser, ask for the the Landry. <laughs> the uh, the Rachel, that was so nineties. Yeah. Everyone now, they're on the, uh, the Landry. The Landry. <laughs> okay. Matt, what did the master teach you? It taught me if you want to really get in someone's head, get them to just keep on walking into walls and to describe how they feel. Because uh, Phil Seymour Hoffman does this with Yaquin Phoenix. And he just makes him, with his eyes shut, keep walking the walls, feel them, and describe them. And boy, by the end of that, he is hitting the wall. He's having sex with the wall. He's he's doing practically everything with these walls. <laughs> it's very, uh, seems like very effective psychological exercise to get in someone's head. You'd think that they would feel just more and more like a wall, but uh, perhaps this might stimulate other feelings in the wall. The wall might be more than just a wall. Mm. I feel like me personally would probably just continue to feel a wall. Yeah. I'd be like, this is the same wood, the same glass that I yeah. touched over and over for the last six hours. Yeah, maybe you need to be the right person for that experiment. <laughs> I I speaking of the experiments they had, in one of the opening scenes, they had a psychiatrist talking with... Um, Yaquin Phoenix showing him pictures and asking him to describe the pictures. What what do you see here? And I was, there's no right or wrong answer. And I was thinking, oh, th- these are always fun because then you can. What does it look like to you? Uh, well, Yaquin Phoenix, they all like pussies and cocks, so <laughs> we know where his head's at. Like, yeah, I think I was trying to do them. I think there was three. There's three. I saw a bat. I saw the Dark Knight logo. <laughs> I saw the Dark Knight logo. I thought, boy. Like, why didn't Yaquin Phoenix say the Dark Knight logo? That would have been, like, spot on. I saw a beetle with a long pointy nose. Okay, the second one I saw a ship. Sort of had the mast up there with the little cockpit at the top. Hmm. Hmm. And the third one I saw two arms, both giving the thumbs up. I saw two ladies looking at each other. There you go. If someone would like to see the film, yes. get see those pictures and then diagnose us yeah. based on our <laughs> yes. responses, uh, let us know on the uh, Facebook fan page. Now it's time for our screen verdict. Yes. This was a really long film about just two people. Mm. Plus Amy Adams. <laughs> and yet those two people were able to keep me interested and intrigued for the entire length of the film. I think, as I said before, the film basically lived or died on the chemistry between these two actors, and they completely pulled it off. Not a lot happens, but the intensity between the two and the connection that it's somehow able to generate 
between the film and the audience, or at least me, I think is something that is quite rare, something really special, actually, that Paul Thomas Anderson has been able to achieve. It's not quite as arty, but it is... There's something about the film that's quite hard to get your head around, quite grasp. I'd say, in a way, a little bit similar to last year's The Tree of Life. Mm -hmm. I felt like a lot of people would not like this film about The Tree of Life, and I feel like people might say the same about The Master, even though it's not quite as abstract. But I felt a similar connection to the film. I wouldn't say I completely understood all the themes and there wasn't quite as much story as one would expect, but it made a connection with me. Mm. And that was something that I was really impressed with. So I'm going to give this film an 8.5 out of 10. A pretty impressive score. Mm. Yes, the master. It's a movie. Here's a high score coming. (laughs) I can feel it. I'll start off what I didn't like about it. <laughs> um, I thought it was too long. I thought it meandered. I found the ending unsatisfying. I thought it should have been more story-driven. I I didn't like that it was so character-focused. I, I really wanted some it to go somewhere and it didn't go anywhere. Like, when you're dealing with something like a cult and someone being brought into a cult, I thought there's, like more like a more interesting story that could have been told than what was and i found some of the scenes dragged here's what i liked about it (laughs) i thought he had some very good performances in here i thought i thought philip seymour hoffman yaquin phoenix and amy adams all gave great performances i thought i thought they were all uh as you would expect especially from philip seymour hoffman and amy adams two of the greatest five working actors today you know, knocked it out of the park, got it top shelf performances. I think there's some interesting direction there. Some interesting, um, there are some scenes that just really work like the, um, what is it called? The processing scene really works well. Um, and you've sort of, you do have nigh a nice film that sort of does have these characters and follows these characters through sort of, I guess, an interesting world. And it gives us insight into an interesting world. So you've got these great performances You've got some interesting characters, some interesting developments, some nicely done scenes, uh, but a film that ultimately lacks direction and is unsatisfying. I'm going to give it a 7.5 out of 10. Hey! <laughs> it's, a, it's a good film, and even though I didn't like bits of it, I recognised that bits of it were good. Much better than The Tree of Life. <laughs> So that's a verdict. What do we have in housekeeping, Matt? Well, housekeeping, I've uh, got a couple, uh, well, maybe one thing. This week you are off to Pampax. <laughs> what is this? Followers of the podcast might have heard that I train Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Yes. And there's the Pan Pacific Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu competition in Melbourne this weekend. So I'll be flying down tomorrow night and competing over the weekend. And hopefully on next week's podcast I can... Bring back a bit of a success story, mm. I guess, this year. So wait, the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Championships are not in Brazil. The World Championships are usually set in Brazil. The Pan Pacific Championships are usually set in the Pan Pacific. Oh, okay. 
I think from everyone at Screen Verdict, all the best of luck, Jonathan. What can you win? What like a gold medal, a ribbon, a belt? Like what? What do they give out at these things? <laughs> uh, I suppose medals. Medals. Okay, so. Bring home the gold. Bring home the gold for Screen Verdict, Jonathan. I should wear a, a Screen Verdict patch on my gi to uh, oh, the podcast while competing. Oh, yes. Yes. Be handing out the business cards for yeah. down in Melbourne. Yeah. No, so uh, all the best of luck. But, but seriously, from all of us here, all the best of luck. I'm sure you'll do a great job. Win, lose, or draw. Be proud of you. And you saw Radiohead this week. What, what were you more excited for? Competing in the Pan Packs? Or seeing Radiohead, your favourite band from high school? Oh, that's a good question. I've been a huge fan of Radiohead for many years. Perhaps not quite the diehard fan I was when I was 16. I guess if I do well, (laughs) (laughs) that will be the better event that happened this week. If not, I can always say, well, at least I saw Radiohead. They were good this week. So, Jonathan, bigger fan of... uh, Him competing in (laughs) jiu-jitsu than Radiohead playing music. (laughs) And also, just quickly, um, thanks to everyone who tuned into our election coverage, our live Obama Romney America's Verdict show. For people who watched all two hours of it, um, thanks very much. We know Eric really enjoyed it, um, and w- wasn't that fun calling the election? Yeah, we were on at a prime time. Yeah, during the election coverage, I think we were actually the first, the first to call the election for Obama. Yeah, and. Like, you can watch and see our live reactions to the Obama announcement. Like, it's pretty (laughs) exciting. Um, I was pretty... Not surprised that Obama won, but I wasn't expecting him to win that soon, so I got a bit of a surprise (laughs) when we had to make the call. Um, But, yeah, no, thanks, everyone, for tuning into that. Uh, We got a lot of good feedback back from that election coverage. So, you know, in four years' time... (laughs) (laughs) The number one place... The 2016 election yeah. results will be yeah. a screen verdict. Yeah. Uh, thanks for listening to our master podcast, guys. We've got some really exciting ones coming up. We've got Seven Samurais. We're going to be reviewing that old classic. No? What movie? Seven Psychopaths. Psychopath, And that's a new one. Yes. Uh, well, that makes more sense to do that one then. <laughs> um, so we'll do The Seven Psychopaths and Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 2. I don't know in which order we're doing those two, but those, those sort of are our two next ones. We love Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 1. The podcast. <laughs> People love the podcast. Can't wait to review Part 2. This, uh, to set the stage, this was our worst reviewed movie of all time, Breaking Dawn Part 1. A combined 2 out of 20 from Screen Verdict. Yes, I gave it a zero. It is the worst film I have ever seen in my life. (laughs) I stand by that. Will it be worse? Will (laughs) Breaking Dawn Part 2 be worse? I think it's the big question. (laughs) And could very well be down to, does Anna Kendrick have more or less screen time than she had in the first one? So film records could be set next week in our Breaking Dawn Part 2 podcast. If any film is going to be worse than Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 1, Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 2 would be, I guess, a good guess. Unless they make another Muppets movie. Oh, oh, come on, (laughs) come on. You preferred the Muppets to Breaking Uh, Dawn Part 1. You teed it up for me, Matt. Uh, (laughs) So stay tuned for that, guys, and we'll see you next week. See ya.